Welcome to episode 35 of the Lady Science Podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine. I'm Layla McNeil, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. And I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. Anna isn't able to join us today, but our social media editor, KJ Shepard, is here with us. Yay! Yay. Hi, everyone. Howdy. Hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel we, like if we are, we need to give a warning here. We're recording <laughs> yes. this on November 7th. Uh, it's only a few hours after the results of the presidential election was announced, and we've got a really weird energy going right now. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> we're all kind of having out-of-body experiences of various kinds um it's very strange uh but we are happy to be here um and um we knew this topic was gonna be weird whatever the election shook out to be um today we're going to be talking about jewish women scientist refugees who fled the nazis during world war ii and immigrated to the u.s um Many of us know the names of their male counterparts, uh, like uh, Jared von Neumann and, uh, of course, Albert Einstein. Um, but many women scientists who attempted to emigrate and find careers in science in America found their paths to success blocked at multiple turns. Between an immigration system that discriminated against Jews and academic institutions committed to keeping out both Jews and women, uh, Jewish women refugee scientists coming to America struggled to find the support they needed just to survive. And we're going to start not in World War II, but in 1917, 22 years before the war officially started. In 1917, Congress enacted new policies to limit the number of foreign-born people in the U.S., which included literacy tests for immigrants over 16 years old and barred entry to anyone from Asia, except people from the Philippines and Japan. Then, in the early 1920s, Congress introduced a quota system that restricted the number of new immigrants to 350,000 per year. The quota was based on the 1910 census and set at 3% of the total foreign-born population. So when it came time to renew the act in 1924, all of the pieces were in place to craft the most restrictive immigration law to date. The Immigration Act of 1924, signed into law by President Coolidge, extended its exclusion of Asians to the Japanese and Filipinos, which of course created tension, to say the least, with Japan. It also based its quota on 2%, rather than the previous 3%, of the foreign-born population. So this decreased the total number of new immigrants per year to 150,000. And what's more, they set quotas tailored to different countries. So they granted a higher number of visas to people in Great Britain and other Western European nations and a lower number of visas to people in Southern and Eastern European countries. And if you know anything about America's historical attitude towards immigrants, the subtext is clear. They wanted to curtail the number of Jews and Italians in the United States. So then if we fast forward nine years to 1933, this is the year Adolf Hitler became chancellor of Germany and the Nazi party became the ruling political body of the country. The Nazi party enacted uh, it, it sweeping anti-Semitic laws to strip Jewish people of their civil rights, including the law for the restoration of the professional civis, civil service of 1933. 
The civil service law expelled Jews, other quote-unquote non-Aryans, and political dissidents from all civil service positions in the country. And since universities were under the purview of the state, this included professors, researchers, and others in the German academy. As a result, 12,000 scholars lost their jobs, and many of these scholars began to seek employment abroad in other European countries and in the U.S. And the U.S. government knew what was happening in Germany, but Congress didn't consider expanding their restrictive quota numbers of visas for refugees. And for Germany, the visa quota was just under 26,000, and considering the hundreds of thousands who tried to leave the country in the 1930s, this doesn't seem like much at all. And I think it's important to note here that the immigration system wasn't broken. It was working as its 1924 authors intended it to. And I think even now, we, when we look at our immigration system in this country, we often say, like, it's a broken system. Um, but I think it's important to keep in mind that these systems aren't broken. <laughs> They're working the way that the people who crafted them intended them to. Um, and that's the same thing that happened um, in the 1930s. And um, on top of the government, the American Academy also knew what was happening to Jewish intellectuals. And many in the Academy merely observed what was happening so as to not appear to be taking a political stance in the eyes of the German government. So this indifference on a systemic scale in these early days of Nazi rule shaped the lives of hundreds of thousands of Jews, millions, really. I do think your point about uh, things, the immigration systems working as, as they're meant to is like, I'm going to underline that and like put three exclamation points after it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That continues to be the case. I, you know, and I don't think, I don't think it's just a case of us being on like election day part five to, to look at like the structures around us and systems around us and, and not realize that things are done by design, right? That this isn't an accident. This, you know, these things aren't just like unintended consequences that these things are actually often quite deliberate, especially when we want to think that there is like such a thing as like de facto versus de jure. Quite often mm -hmm. it's, it is by, it is de jure is quite often by design. We think about, you know, America kind of like springing into action <laughs> in the 1930s, yeah. but we really just sat back and waited to see what was going to happen for a really long time. Yeah. 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 So uh, interestingly, uh, Jewish scholars had an option to come to the U.S. on a non-quota visa. Um, and I feel like this is, this is, again, a thing that is often very common, is uh, in your certain professions, they, they let through in different ways. Um, under Section 4D of the Act, professors and members of the clergy could theoretically acquire a non-quota visa if they had maintained for two years a job in their profession and in their country of origin, and had, the had a job in the same profession lined up for them in the U.S., uh, I feel like this is one of those things that um, comes up when people are like, oh, God, how, do, how, how, would I, how would I move to another country? It's like we look and we go, oh, if, you ha if you're like a fancy doctor, then you can move to another country if you can get someone to hire you. Um, so, again, like these things are actually still, I think, part of many of what we kind of the, – the, the sort of almost standard immigration systems, um, which I think is an interesting point to keep in mind. Um, anyway, uh, 
Acquiring a non-quota visa would have been difficult for any scholar, male or female, for a few reasons. Um, for one thing, American universities were rife with anti-Semitism, as we mentioned earlier. And they were hesitant to hire Jews, um, even ones that were in America. Uh, and they also weren't very keen to hire anyone foreign-born if they could hire an American. Another reason was age. Um, universities didn't want to hire anyone too old who might be nearing the end of their career. And they also didn't want to hire anyone too young, um, or else that could mean they hadn't contributed enough yet and, I guess, wouldn't be a productive member of the institution. They couldn't just do it because, like, you know, it was the right thing to do. Um, all of which leads to a third reason. Um, refugees relied upon such universities to extend a job offer to them. So even when various aid organizations, like the Emergency Committee for Displaced Scholars, facilitated job placement for scholars, refugees relied on universities opting, to, opting in to help um, and on universities to let them know when they needed to fill a position. Uh, so I also want to point out that universities weren't even the ones paying the salaries for the refugee professors. The salaries could be paid for by the Emergency Committee in coordination with other philanthropic organizations. In her book, Well Worth Saving, American Universities' Life and Death Decisions on Refugees from Nazi Europe, Laurel Leff sums up the situation, writing, quote, Ultimately, universities decided which scholars were, quote, worth saving, in the unfortunate phrase of the time, and the State Department decided whether they were worth to be saved. So... Like Rebecca said, it was difficult for anybody to obtain a non-quota visa. So difficult that between 1933 and 1941, only 944 professors across all disciplines received non-quota visas. And if we consider this with the 12,000 scholars who lost their jobs in 1933, that isn't a lot of visas. Usually, it took someone already known and well-connected in the U.S. and who had someone personally advocating for them to receive a sympathetic ear from university administrators. Cold writing an administrator that you had never met before and asking for aid probably didn't get you anywhere. And you couldn't just be any scientist either. You had to be the best of the best. As Nathan Reingold points out in an article on refugee mathematicians in the U.S., the goal wasn't so much to alleviate human suffering, but to save quote-unquote useful intellectual contributions. Left sums up this tightrope walk, writing, quote, Overall, to be hired by American universities, refugee scholars had to be world-class and well-connected and working in disciplines for which the American Academy had a recognizable need. They could not be too old or too young, too right or too left, and most important, too Jewish. Having money helped. Being a woman did not. Like with everything, mostly. Like with <laughs> everything. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Honestly, to, to jump in here for a second, there's actually a really interesting, very specific example of this in the Science History Institute collections. Um, I think it was last year uh, we got a like bunch of personal papers from a scientist named George Bredig. 
um, who is not someone you will have, would have heard of, but basically he was friends with everyone who was a German chemist uh, in the early 20th century, who you have heard of. Um, and, and the interesting thing about the collection is that, so he had a son who did emigrate to the U.S. earlier, and so we have a bunch of the letters that um, Bredig wrote to his son, uh, where literally it charts this process of, oh, I've lost my job. Oh, I've, they won't let me use the library anymore. And just like, like the, 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 the right slowly getting like cut away. And he was, he was older and he didn't want to leave. And finally his family was like, no, really leave. Uh, and called in like every freaking favor. And again, this is someone who knew everyone. Um, and uh, and they finally like I think they got him like a fake position at Princeton, <laughs> um, because he like he was one where he was such so high status that they were willing to give him like a pretend position even though he was like in his seventies. Yeah. Um, but even that, it was like in 1941 that he left. Jeez. Wow. Uh, because of like the effort it took, um, and like this is someone who'd probably met Albert Einstein. Like, yeah. Uh, and and that's super just, old because Leff says in her book that typically the cutoff was 55. Yeah. yeah like, that yeah, was kind of was like the ideal range because it wasn't that too old and not too young, like Goldilocks age. There were right. exceptions, but like that was kind of like the rule of thumb kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And like from what from what I remember, like he never taught or anything. They just gave him basically like a position. And then he lived in New York with his family and mm-hmm. died like five years later or something. Um, But yeah. And, and he was also one of those like not too Jewish people. Right. Like he wasn't like he was Jewish technically, but, you know, right. he was a he was a Berlin intellectual um, dude. And yeah, I think that you said that he didn't really want he wanted to stay in Germany. And I think that that's also something to point yeah. out with um, yeah. a lot of these people was that like Germany was their home, no matter what was happening there. And so like, yeah. even though they wanted to, they needed to leave and wanted to leave to flee oppression. Like a lot of them kind of waited out to see if they could stay and how long they could stay because it was their home, you know, that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was yeah. where they lived. And I think a yeah. lot of, times when we tell this story of like America saving all these Jewish people, it's like, and that they should be grateful for it. It's like, well, <laughs> well, did being you a marry? refugee like, sucks. Right? Like, yeah, yeah exactly. Like, <laughs> under the best, even if like you're a very like privileged refugee, that still sucks. Yeah. And it's not like, even if you had money, it's not like you could like gather up all the family jewels real fast. Like more than likely you were fleeing with the clothes on your back in like Mm -hmm. a bag. Yeah. So for Jewish women scientists who tried to obtain a non-quota visa, the odds were further stacked against them. Since non-quota visas required immigrants to have employment as a professor for two years in their country and to have a job in the same field secured in the U.S., Women scientists were often bound by systemic gender discrimination in universities that effectively kept them out of such positions that could ensure their survival. Even someone like Emmy Noter, who uh, was then and is still today, recognized as one of the most significant mathematicians of the 20th century, was rejected by Princeton, um, which Noter called, quote, a men's university which admits nothing female, end quote. (laughs) So <laughs> I love I love the admits nothing, nothing. female. Yeah. 
And uh, beyond the university, gender discrimination was also baked into the Immigration Act itself. So I want to take a look at the actual text of Section 4D to get an idea of what kind of person Congress had in mind when creating the non-quota option. Quote, an immigrant who continuously for at least two years, immediately preceding the time of his application for admission to the United States solely for the purpose of carrying on the vocation of minister or any religious denomination or professor of a college, academy, seminary, or university, and his wife and his unmarried children under 18 years of age, if accompanying or following to join him, end quote. So this visa was envisioned for men married to women. It didn't work for women because it wasn't meant to. So when we talk about saving intellectual contributions, women's intellect wasn't included in that either. Yeah, I, th- I think I think the most interesting part of that is the um, the and his wife and mm. his children part, because uh, I mean, like, obviously, the use of he as like generic is has lots of assumptions baked into it always. Um, but there's always the like person that's going to be like, well, the he was just generic, but it's like, no, it said and his wife. And suddenly you're putting this person in a social, a gendered social context and not just using a word that is meant to mean a person. Uh, Yeah, that's so specific. (laughs) Yeah. It's so depressing, especially when you get into like actual wartime years and you're like, "Uh this entire country spending all of this goddamn energy on this fucking war. And the best you can do is... A dude and his wife and his minor children, not under 18. You know what I mean? It's that idea of just, like, it's the person who goes to, like, the fancy restaurant where, like, the steak is $85 without any of the sides or the apps or the drinks or the dessert and tips, like, 15 bucks, right? It's just, like, on what... And then feels themselves very generous for having done... Like, oh, I, 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 I did this. Good, good for me. Yes, yes. Like, it's just, okay. I mean, obviously they didn't care. Like this was written to save intellect. It wasn't really created to save lives. And I think that says a lot about American science and the American Academy and what we consider to be knowledge and who gets to create that knowledge. Um, And that we don't consider the knowledge that women create to be worth saving either. So you might be wondering, if universities were closed off to women refugees, then what happened to them? Um, Well, some of them did find positions in women's colleges rather than universities. In total, 80 women scientists and mathematicians applied for aid from the emergency committee. And by the end of the war, only four were were granted aid. Four, as in one, two, three, four, as in the number of days it has almost been since the election. (laughs) Yes. Um, three of them found positions at women's colleges. Emmy Noter, the first woman to receive aid from the committee in 1933, ended up at Bryn Mawr. Hilda Geringer, a pioneering applied mathematician, also ended up at Bryn Mawr in 1939. Hedwig Cohn, a physicist specializing in radiometry, uh, found a position at the Women's College of the University of North Carolina in 1941. The fourth, Tilly Edinger, 
had worked as a museum curator in Germany and was closed off to possibility of a university or college position and a non-quota visa altogether. But her international reputation as the founder of the field of paleoneurology, you know, she just founded a whole field, that earned her a place at the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard. While these women were waiting for the wheels of the American bureaucracy to turn in their favor, they were often on the run, literally. Geringer and her daughter were about to be deported from Lisbon to a concentration camp while waiting on word of acceptance to Bryn Mawr. Cohn was fleeing from country to country in Europe. So was Edinger, who was prepared to commit suicide before being incarcerated in a Nazi camp. And even though women's colleges were more willing to take in women's scholars, they weren't without their own problems. Remember that by the 1930s, women in both the U.S. and Europe had only recently gained access to higher education, and after a long fight to win that right, Leth explains that, quote, some sentiments surfaced that the addition of refugee scholars would hold back the appointment of American women, end quote. Yay, nativism. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> and one thing, like, to point out with, like, all of this is that whether they were taking in women or men is that there was this, like, aversion to giving any sort of money to mm-hmm. a foreign mm-hmm. person. And, like... Yeah. I, this is in the context of coming out of, and in some places still very much in the throes of the Great Depression in the early 1930s. Um, but there was this idea of like not of them not being a burden um, right. of, yeah. and you know yeah. that's one of the reasons the emergency committee helped pay for their salaries was so that they wouldn't be a quote unquote public charge. So. <laughs> It's real gross. Like, yes, give, love the give invocation. <laughs> it's it's like these are these are I'm sorry these are fancy people, and not that they were able to bring like their wealth with them, but like it's it just it shows the deep irrationality of the oh, but these foreign people are going to take our money. Right. It's like people who already are part of the elite where they're from, they have connections, they have status, they have networks. And then like to winnow it down to like, like, like that's the number that keeps getting me fucking four, four, four. Right. Like after, you know, yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, And on top of that, uh, women's colleges were not financially or materially set up to accommodate research scientists like Noder and Geringer. Women's colleges were primarily teaching institutions, and that's unlike universities such as Harvard and Yale that supported both. So Geringer, for example, was the first woman in Germany to become a lecturer in applied mathematics, and she was a professor for five years at Istanbul University, where she published over a dozen research articles and books. But no university in the U.S. would take her, sometimes explicitly citing her gender as a reason, and she was never able to pick up her research again. Yeah, and one thing also about Geringer, like earlier, I can't remember who said it, but that um, the U.S. or universities were more likely to take in scientists um, whose field was, like, desirable at that time. Right. And... 
as an applied mathematician, um, applied mathematics is usually popular when there is a need for it because it is applied math, right? It's mm -hmm. being applied to a specific thing. This was wartime. There right. was a need for applied mathematics. And she right. applied at Brown University, um, which was a hub for applied mathematics in the U.S., and she still couldn't get a job there. So that that reasoning didn't even matter for women <laughs> about the field being applicable. So... <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. And the reality for most women scholars was that they were not eligible for non-quota visas at all. The State Department didn't qualify archivists, librarians, and researchers under Section 4D. And um, these were the positions women were most likely to get in the U.S. because those are gendered positions. Right. Um, some were still able to emigrate on regular visas, but many were not. And even being world-class couldn't save some of these women. Left cites the case of Marie-Anna Sherman, a physicist from the University of Vienna, who was the first person to confirm static electricity between solid bodies and gases. She was also an inventor who obtained several patents for devices she used in her own research. But despite her obvious skill and brilliance, she was denied professorship at the Physical Institute of Vienna in 1930 because she was both Jewish and female. So she was forced to stay in a research position. Records from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum show that Sherman was registered at Modilibajica Ghetto in Poland between 1939 and 1944, where she died before the end of the war, likely in an extermination camp. The story about the U.S.'s role in World War II is still largely celebratory, um, but we really need to be honest with ourselves about what really happened. The U.S. could have done more, but didn't, and instead carried on with business as usual. And when we look at the story through the experiences of women and through the lens of gender, we see even more systemic failures to do more. One of the things that's really fucking me up... <laughs> About this is how, like, when, Rebecca, you were talking about, like, all the things that these women went through before they even got to the U.S., they were on their way to a concentration camp before they came here and, you know, fleeing from country to country and stuff like that. A lot of them, to make money, still had to be working in some capacity during this time of, like, mm. going from country to country and stuff. And then also, then when they got here, they were supposed to start working. <laughs> at their yeah. new jobs. I, I'm such a fragile, tiny baby that these last four days, <laughs> five days of waiting for election results has rendered me incapable of logical thought that these women were able to do that. And they had to, to survive. But like, it's just, it blows my mind that they were able to do that. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, oh, I'm, yeah. The whole, like I was sit the, the, whoever it was that was sitting in Lisbon, um, mm -hmm. wait, like knowing that she was going to go get, um, get sent to a concentration camp, like any moment. And, um, uh, and then like she got the job at Bryn Mawr. and just like the kind of just like day-to-day -day horror of not knowing whether you could be, like, a college professor or a, like, someone in a concentration camp. Like, Jesus. When I was reading Left's book, 
um, when they would be, when anyone was like denied a job, their rejection letters were very much like they knew that if they were denying them a job, that they were sending them to mm-hmm. likely their death, if not to, you know, waste away in a camp or a ghetto. And still the rejection letters that they got was something probably you'd still get today. Like just a very much, I'm sorry, we can't accept you at this time. It, it is almost like it is that kind of like the the banality of evil, right? Not to bastardize our rent, but like it's that same idea right. of just like, yeah. well, yeah. it's just what we can and can't do at this time. It's nothing personal. It's, you know, we can't afford this at this time. It's like, but you know what you know, right? And, like, mm-hmm. by this point, if somebody's applying for you, you know what's on the wall. And, like, the little bitty things, like, oh, right, because you have to have a comparable job waiting for you to get this visa. And so, like, you can't – And as <laughs> Not uh, to, like, I'll, throw like, in some, like, <laughs> contemporary thinking about academia, but, you like, you can't get an Altec job that's perfectly fine. <laughs> well, like, as former you can't academics, like, an archivist. like, right, like, where it's it's literally, as, as people who've all left the academy in various ways, it's like somebody, it's like your mom telling you, can't you just, like, apply for this job at Brown? It's, right. like, right there. It's like, no, ma. Like, it doesn't, <laughs> right, right. It, it, it's is... in microbiology, no. Like, <laughs> yeah. And this feels like that, but with, like, literal life and death stakes. Exactly. It's, it's like, no, you can't get this visa if you just want to be, like, a non, like, a researcher or a librarian or a high school teacher. Because you just need, you know, you need to get out of the country. Yeah. yeah. And there were a lot of people, I mean, there were people that were willing to do anything. Like, there right. was one woman, she was a archaeologist uh i think and she um ended up coming to work as a domestic for her qualifications for that she just cited like being able to be an archaeologist and have four kids at the same time so she's like i know how to manage a house like which that's legit yeah it is legit (laughs) (laughs) that's kind of that's kind of amazing yeah but like you know that there were they were willing to do like give up their careers and whatever just to be able to come here and live What's, like, doubly heinous is, like, the U.S. is, like, obsessed with brain power at this point, like, during the Mm -hmm. war and after the war. Like, this is how we, like, get standardized testing to be such a thing, is they're obsessed with brain power and utilizing it, right? So it's not like they couldn't connect. This is, like, a two-piece puzzle, right? (laughs) Like, it's not that difficult. It's, it's, It's deliberate and on purpose and, like, something that has to be looked at right in the face yeah Yeah. like it's obviously important to study the history of people who are not the elites but sometimes you have these moments where you're like even people who are like everything that that our complicated and flawed society is saying that they value for probably reasons that we don't love um you can do all the things right and still like, well, but you're a woman. Well, you're Jewish. Well, you're a weird foreigner. We don't have time for you. Right. Exactly. And um, I, I've researched some of these women individually, so I can't speak for all of them, but I know that um, Nutter and Geringer also held very left leading 
politics as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Noter held very strong Marxist politics. And so, like, that was yet another thing, you know, like, a little too left, a little too Jewish, a little too female, you know, and so all of those things, both in Germany and the US just kind of collided into this, you know, perfect storm of basically rejection and suffering at every, at every turn. And (laughs) I do want to point out, like, what, uh, how shitty the universities were, the Ivies, especially, but especially Harvard. (laughs) I want to take a moment to shit on Harvard. Um, (laughs) Please, please do. Because they, all the Ivies were kind of stingy in the positions that they were handing out. But um, for most of the 30s, Harvard didn't accept any. There was like a write-up in the New York Times that called them out for that. They listed the the universities that had like taken, um, taken in refugee scholars and they were like all but Harvard. And the Harvard administrator threw just like a downright hissy <laughs> and was like, no, we have accepted three. But then it turned out that they weren't really refugees. They were people who were already like living in the U.S. or something like that. <laughs> so I just oh wanted to take a moment to shit on Harvard. If you go to Harvard and you listen to this podcast, I'm sure you're lovely because you're listening to this podcast and agree with the things that we say. Um, so please continue yes. to listen to the podcast. Please, please I mean, go I know to our a lot Patreon. Of, I, <laughs> I feel like we know many people who uh, work or went to Harvard who would be like, yeah, fuck Harvard. So. Mm-hmm. And I also want to head off anyone that's like, well, lots of people didn't make it out and lots of people died. So why should we care about these four women who did make it to the U.S. and got jobs? And I think it's really important to examine this whole story through the experiences of women. Um, because if we don't, we're not going to see the gendered language mm-hmm. of the Immigration Act. We're not of the, mm-hmm. you know, the non-quota visa. We're not going to understand the the gender discrimination that made it harder for certain groups to immigrate. It's really important that we do kind of zero in on those specific experiences, because if we don't examine it from all these different angles, then if we try to do better, we're going to miss that stuff. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yes. It's, it is something that it's like, Oh, scrap the sentence. It fell out of my head. Sorry. <laughs> it died. It died on the table. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's that kind of day. That was a pretty great line to end on. I, I, I think that's why I let that one die. I'm like, no, <laughs> don't pull focus. That's a great one. Yeah. Yeah. If you liked our episode today, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. If you have questions for us about any of the topics we discussed, tweet us at at LadyXScience or hashtag LadySciPod. For show notes, episode transcripts, to sign up for a monthly newsletter, read articles and essays, pitch us an idea and more, visit LadyScience.com. And we are an independent magazine, so we depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit LadyScience.com slash donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at at LadyScienceMag and on Twitter and Instagram at at LadyXScience. Science.